In reality television, the people are represented by two separate but equally obsessed attorneys. This is their podcast. Hi, I'm Ceci. And I'm Angela. And this is the Bravo Docket. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Bravo Docket. So we were originally going to be talking about Jen Shaw's sentencing. However, that was recently moved to January 6th. However, (laughs) since then, Todd and Julie Chrisley received their sentence, so we figured this would be the perfect time to discuss their sentence, give a refresher on how sentencing works in light of Jen Shaw's upcoming sentencing. And for those curious, her new dates, her submission is due December 16th. The government's submission is due December 23rd. And the hearing is January 26th, and we're going to be discussing submissions in Todd and Julie Chrisley's sentencing to give you some insight into what the sentencing submissions might look like in Jen Shaw's. And I wanted to touch on the fact that everyone in our comments when we posted about the dates changing, we're like, oh, no, Jen Shaw gets special treatment, and how dare she move it, and she's just, you know, pushing it out for no reason, and this happens all the time in civil and criminal cases, deadlines and dates and hearing dates get pushed constantly. In this case, I think it was an agreement between Jen Shaw's counsel and the prosecution to move it. It could be anything from demands on the attorney's side, like maybe they have another case coming up. It could be as simple as they want to take a vacation during the holidays so it's not something so out of the ordinary. It's not. Ne- it doesn't necessarily mean that Jen Shaw is getting preferential treatment. She likely isn't. The judge doesn't care who Jen Shaw is or isn't. It's just a, a procedural change. So, yeah, that happens all the time. That's very, very standard for something like that to get continued. It doesn't mean she's not going to jail. It doesn't mean she's special. It's just how the system works. Oh, and then before we dive in as well, Angela and I are both traveling. Like we just mentioned, the holidays are upon us. We have work demands, holiday demands. So neither of us have our our, in our usual recording spaces. We don't have our recording equipment, but we still wanted to get an episode out this week for our listeners. So we apologize in advance for any echo. We're going to try and edit it out in post, but we're working with what we got. And yeah, hopefully it's okay. Yeah, sorry guys, between my continual voice and asthma struggles and then flying directly from Mexico to New York City and not even having a stopover in Austin, I do not have all my audio equipment, but we are doing our very best. But again, if you hear stuff and we don't sound as good, it's not because we don't care. It's just because we do care. So we are recording this even though we're both traveling. (laughs) Right. (laughs) All right. So to the subject at hand, it's Todd and Julie Chrisley's sentencing. Do you want to give a refresher? Because we do have other sentencing episodes and we are going to talk about this again when we review Jen Shaw's sentencing. But let's talk about what sentencing is, how we reach a sentencing how they calculate the jail time. Let's just dig into that right away. Obviously, we did episodes on Todd and Julie Chrisley on the details of their charges. It's actually some of the favorite episodes that of mine that we've done. So if you're curious about really all of the details of that, go back and listen to those before listening to this. And we are going to touch on, as we go through it, what they were convicted of and why. 
because that goes into the government sentencing submissions. But before, we just want to talk about sentencing procedure. Now, this is in federal court, and these this is usually quite a bit different than how it works in state court. But a few months after a defendant is found guilty, they return to court to be sentenced. So the judge gets guidance and assistance from multiple sources in order to sentence a defendant like Jen Shaw or the Chrisleys or, you know, Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos, who was just sentenced. Buddy. All right. He gets kicked out. You get kicked out. You go. Bye. So Congress established minimum and maximum punishments for many crimes, but there, there, it, there's not mandatory minimum sentencing anymore. The government found that that was really unfair in a lot of respects, and it absolutely was. But there are sentencing guidelines, and between the prosecutors and the defense attorneys, both doing submissions and them coming together, and then having the sentencing guidelines, they each side makes arguments. And there's upward departures saying, okay, the sentencing guideline would normally be this, but because of you know, so on and so forth, these enhancements should be added. And then there's also downward departures from the sentencing guidelines saying, okay, because of these mitigating circumstances, even though this would, you know, generally be 24 months, blah, 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 for a level seven or whatever it is, we are arguing that there should be a downward departure. And sometimes even the prosecution will agree with that and say, the U.S. attorneys will say, we agree that there should be a downward departure in this case for this reasons. And then they present that to the judge. But ultimately, it is the judge's decision as to the sentence. And so the judge looks at the aggravating and mitigating factors, and we'll go into what a lot of those are because it's really interesting, and go through that. So, Ceci, do you want to talk about the federal sentencing guidelines a little bit? Sure. So, like we've talked about before, sentencing under the guidelines is a scorekeeping exercise So it's sort of like I've mentioned in the Cosmo quizzes we used to take when we were younger, if you were anything like us, in the magazines where you would get a certain number of points if you agree with the statement made here. It's a point system for different aggravating and mitigating factors. And this from the government says it's not unlike the procedure for filling out a federal income tax return. That's not as fun as a Cosmo quiz. So I like comparing it to a Cosmo quiz because tax return sucks. Well, I think for I think for defendants, it typically is more like the tax return. But yeah, for our purposes, it's much more like a you know it's much more fun to think of it like a quiz. So the process involves so, assigning a f- offense levels for a particular offense based on the nature of the offense and the circumstances under which it was committed. So under the guidelines, most sentencing determinations follow from the final offense level identified at the end of the process. The sentencing ranges for any term of imprisonment depend both on the final offense level and upon the offender's criminal history. It's a score calculated based on the basis of the past criminal record and divided into categories. I've mentioned that before. Having past criminal record is a big factor in the sentence that is calculated. Yeah. And so the guidelines, the, the federal sentencing guidelines take into account both the serious of, seriousness of the offense and the offender's criminal history. So offense seriousness. The sentencing guidelines provide 43 levels of offense seriousness. The more serious the crime, the higher the offense level. And so each type of crime is assigned a base offense level, which is the starting point for determining the seriousness of a particular offense. Most serious types of crime have higher base offense levels. So the example here is a trespass has a base offense level of four, while kidnapping has a base offense level of 32. And keep that in mind when we talk about the offense levels for the Chrisleys later on. So kidnapping, offense level 32, trespass, base offense level four. So in addition to the base offense levels, Each offense type carries a number of specific offense characteristics. So there are factors that vary from offense to offense, but it can increase or decrease the base offense level and the sentence the offender receives. So here are some examples. One of the specific base offense characteristics for fraud, which has a base offense level of seven, if the statutory maximum is 20 years or more increases the offense level based on the amount of loss involved in the offense. So if the fraud involves a $6,000 loss, 
there is to be a two-level increase to the base offense level, and that brings it up to a nine. And this happens here, and we'll get into it, but just keep that in mind. So if the fraud involves a 50,000 loss, so instead of a 6,000 loss, the increase is a six-level increase, bringing it to a 13. And as another example, one of the specific offense characteristics for robbery, which has a base offense level of 20, involves use of a firearm. If a firearm was brandished during a robbery, there's a five-level increase, bringing the level to 25. If you actually discharge your firearm during a robbery, then there is a seven-level increase, bringing the level to 27. So you can see what Ceci was saying about how this is you know, it's, it's really a points system. Then there are adjustments, and adjustments are factors that can apply to any specific offense characteristics. They increase or decrease the offense level. So the categories of adjustments include victim-related adjustments, the offender's role in the offense, and obstruction of justice. We talked about actually obstruction of justice in um, the Jin Shaw co-defendant sentencing guidelines because there was some issues with people destroying evidence when they found out the feds were raiding their offices and taking their computers and whatnot. And several people got an upward adjustment because the FBI and the federal agents were able to show that they had destroyed evidence and therefore had um, obstructed justice. And when there's multiple counts of conviction, the sentencing guidelines provide instructions on how to achieve a combined offense level. And so these rules provide incremental punishment for significant additional criminal conduct. The most serious offense is used as a starting point. The other counts determine on how much to increase the offense level. So whatever your most serious offense is of all the crimes that you've committed, that you've pled guilty to or been you know, found guilty of in a court of law, that one starts the base offense level and then the additional ones get added to that. Yes, yeah, so it's not like piled on top think- of each other. Yeah, I think the next one, Ceci, is really interesting if you want to talk about that, because that has come up a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, Here, too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So the final step in determining an offender's offense level involves the offender's acceptance of responsibility. So the judge may decrease the offense level by two levels if, in the judge's opinion, the offender accepted responsibility for his offense. So the judge can consider factors like whether the offender truthfully admitted his or her role in the crime, whether the offender made restitution before there was a guilty verdict, and whether the offender pled guilty. Yes. So that's something that's going to come up a lot in what we're about to talk about with the Chrisleys. And then it's going to continue coming up, and I believe will feature heavily in Jen Shaw's sentencing, the acceptance of responsibility adjustments. And then also, what else did we, who else? Oh, uh, the Dance Moms episode. It came up with that as well. The sort of acceptance of responsibility. And when we were reading those somewhat salacious emails from Ms. Abby Lee Miller to her accountants and whatnot, that in her sentencing hearing that lasted several days, that was definitely a big factor there. Yeah. And for those who don't remember from our prior episode on the Chrisleys, they did not plead guilty. They went to trial. So, yes. and that comes up, but just a little preview. Yes. I think that's also, like we were saying with Jen Shaw, because it was up to the 11th hour before she pled guilty. And then as we're currently watching her on the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City discuss her innocence, that's going to be her claimed innocence. She, as Sessie has explained on a very lovely Instagram reel, she has at her sentencing, or not at her sentencing, at her plea hearing, had to verbally confess and assume responsibility. But it wasn't until she pled guilty that she did that. (laughs) Finally, so there's the determining of the guideline range, and there's a sentencing table. And so it's like on the left side, there's the offense level. Then there's the criminal history category, which really factors into it like we talked about. But then you can also have a sentence outside of the guideline range. And that is something that the prosecutors can argue for or that the judge can say, here are the mitigating circumstances that are the aggravating circumstances that allows the court to do what's termed an upward departure. So the judge can sentence an offender above or below the range. But when going for an upward or downward departure, the judge has to state in writing the reason for the departure from the sentencing guideline. Going through this, so we've just kind of 
explain this very complicated point system for federal sentencing and the guideline ranges. And so as an illustration of that, there's we'll tell you what Todd Chrisley's base offense level was according to the pre-sentence report. And then also what the government's memorandum said that the base offense level should be and then or the total offense level should be. And then there's what the defense on behalf of Todd and Julie Christie argued what the total offense level should be. So a pre-sentence report, which is it's usually referred to with an acronym of the PSR, that's the report. We can't see those. Those are a lot of times those are like confidential, they're sealed because there's a lot of very personal details in there. It'll go through someone's entire, sometimes psychological history, their criminal history, if they have any, and come up with what the total offense level should be once they've gone through and added up all those things that Ceci and I just talked about for the sentencing range. As as an example, the pre-sentence report for Todd Chrisley was a level of 42 for the total offense level. And what did we say kidnapping was? Like 20? No, kidnapping was 32. Kidnapping is 32. So kidnapping has a base level of 32. There might be the mitigating factors we talked about that you would, but if just a straight kidnapping, you've never done anything else, there was no gun involved, 32. So Todd, Chrisley's offense level is, according to the pre-sentence report that was submitted, the offense level is 42. So that's actually... 10 above the base level of kidnapping. But so the pre-sentence report, is that just by the prosecution? That's not like including any of the defenses? Yeah, that's actually the court services. Oh, I need to look that up again to make sure that it's been a long time. But that's like the court services goes through, gets all of those, gets all of the information, compiles it, puts it together, doesn't argue any mitigating. Yeah, so it's not inflated higher because it's the prosecution putting this report together it's like an independent third person putting this together it's not anyone involved in the process it's still the government okay yeah but they're not looking at anything and there's no group yeah yeah it's the it's the government it's the government agency doing it but it's and i'll double check this but it's because it's been a long time since i've done any federal criminal stuff but it's it's separate so that gets submitted and then there, but there's no mitigating or departures or upward. It's just like, okay, here's, if you just look at the like facts and data, I would think of it like, it's like, it's your, it's your tax return without any deductions or mm-hmm. anything in it. If you think about it like that, just like, this is just, if you add everything together, this is what it is. Or it's like, like just on call. I don't know. It's like if your best friend took the Cosmo quiz for you and you didn't without any of your biases and We'll say, like, mm-hmm. the government is your worst enemy, and they they didn't take out the quiz for you either. It's an independent friend, not even a friend, a stranger, just observing you in daily life did it. Because 42 is really high, and when you initially said that, I was like, okay, that makes sense if it was the prosecution putting it together, because they would want something a little bit higher. But if this is just clear-cut, just based on the facts – or based on the elements as they see them, as some government employee sees them not involved in either side of the case, 42 is freaking high. So, and that's a corresponding yeah. sentencing range of 360 months to life imprisonment. Yeah. Like, damn. Oof. I mean, and just, we're going to go into the details of that, but a lot of that has to do with the repeated fraud and then also the amounts of money because it's a massive amount of money so in the the guideline range for like the factors it goes way up so like we had given examples earlier what thirty thousand dollars fifty thousand dollars this is into the millions Mm -hmm. that bumps that up a lot now the government in its sentencing memorandum places the total offense level for todd chrisley at 37 with a custody guideline range of 210 to 262 months. Which that's 210 months is 17.5 years. Because I don't I don't think about life in months. <laughs> I don't think the average person does. No, I love how I love how like people talk about months only for like small yeah. children, babies and small children and prison. Yeah. <laughs> the two joys of life. So, yeah, <laughs> and then 262, which is the upward, is 21.83 years. 
Damn. Yeah. Okay, so obviously Todd Chrisley and his defense attorneys have argued that the correct guidelines and sentencing range would be much lower. And so they're saying the base level for a bank fraud offense is seven, and then that there's an additional 18 levels added. I think that's for like the uh, large amount of money. And then they're saying there's a two-point increase for the role in the offense and a two-point increase for a million dollars from financial institutions and then adjusted level for bank fraud offenses totals 29. And then they're saying regarding the tax offenses, the base offense level for violations of this and this for the tax offenses is 29. And then he's saying, look, he's got a criminal history one. So we're saying a custody guideline range of 97 to 108 months. That's what the defense is saying. So when the defense, even the defense is saying, okay, best case we can make argument we can make is 97 to 108 months. Which is eight to nine years. Yeah. So for Julie Chrisley, her PSR calculated the sentencing guidelines at a total offense level of 38 with a still higher than kidnapping yes still higher than kidnapping with a corresponding sentencing range of 235 to 293 months that's 19.5 years to 24 and a half years and then the government sentencing memorandum calculated a total offense level of or recommended a total offense level of 32 for Julie Chrisley with a corresponding sentencing range of 121 to 151 months incarceration. 10 years to 12.5 years, but 32 is kidnapping. Yeah. Julie's request for her sentence was probation, was zero years in for actual incarceration, and she wanted probation with special conditions and no prison time. And then I think Todd's like final formal request was for no more than nine years. So now that we've gone through that, we want to go through the some stuff that we highlighted from the government's submission. From, yeah, from the government's submission, where they made arguments for these things, because I think a lot of it is actually is really interesting. And then it gives some more details about some of the things that they actually did. And then we'll talk about some of the arguments that Todd and Julie were making for what you now know is a downward departure from sentencing guidelines. So this is 305, right? And just a quick refresher, this is the United States. These were filed in the United States District Court for the Northern District of Georgia, the Atlanta Division. Yeah, so they put a little procedural history to refresh everyone's memory of what happened in the government's words. So they say in 2019, defendants Todd Chrisley, Julie Chrisley, and Peter Tarantino were indicted by a federal grand jury for a variety of crimes. The grand jury returned a superseding indictment in February 2022. During the three-week trial in May and June 2022, the United States presented evidence of the Chrisley's conspiracy to obtain tens of millions of dollars in loans by defrauding community banks, which they later walked away from when Todd declared bankruptcy. The jury also heard how despite earning over $6 million through their entertainment ventures, they evaded paying Todd's 2009 delinquent taxes and failed to finally timely file their tax returns for 2013, 2014, 2015, or 2016, or make any timely payments for those years. Finally, the jury heard how the Chrisleys attempted to obstruct the grand jury investigating their criminal conduct. The Chrisleys' defense at trial was to blame others for all their crimes, including their including their co-conspirator, Mark Braddock, their former employees, Alina Cleary and Donna Cash, the Internal Revenue Service, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, <laughs> their accountants, their lawyers, and Bank of America. The defendants were convicted of all charges. Sentencing is set for November 21st, 2022, which already passed. So this was before that. Yes. So <laughs> just quickly, just a quick refresher. The Chrisleys tried to blame the government is this is not hyperbole here. They literally tried to blame everyone else. They said that Mark Braddock, who was their business partner, had was obsessed with Todd Chrisley and that you know, when Todd broke off the affair, that that he just lost his mind and that he made up all of the stuff and hacked into Todd's computer. They also had their which I didn't find out until reading this, they had their daughter testify that someone had hacked into her computer and that also she, I believe, had sent some of the emails. I mean, they they threw their children under the bus. They threw everyone under the bus. They claimed they literally took no responsibility 
at all. It's it was everything was someone else's fault. Everything. Great for sentencing. Oof. So then they go on and say the United States respectfully requests that the court make the following guideline calculations. And in here they put what the base offense level is, which is a seven for bank fraud. Then they say there was a loss in the amount of 9.5 million to 25 million, which bumps up the number to or adds 20. Then bankruptcy misrepresentations adds two. Sophisticated means adds another two. My dog is barking. Hopefully you can't hear that. It's arrived over $1 million in gross receipts from one or more financial institutions that adds another two. There was an aggravating role, another two. Obstruction adds another two. And that's how they calculated 37 for Todd Chrisley for bank fraud. Then they also go through tax conspiracy. They come up with 24. So then they go through Julie Chrisley and they go through and say bank fraud. She should get 31. Tax conspiracy, 24. Tax evasion, 24. Then they go through criminal history and do some magic with the number there. And they say for Todd Chrisley, they recommend an offense level of 37 with 210 to 262 months, like we spoke about earlier. And Julie Chrisley, an offense level of 32 with 121 to 151 months. And we'll talk about this, but I mean, the base offense levels for these are pretty high. I mean, tax conspiracy, base offense level 20, tax evasion, base offense level 20, bank fraud, base offense level 7, which I think is funny because like the government clearly is like, well, if you're defrauding banks, we're going to give you a level 7. But if you're trying to defraud us, we're bumping that all the way up to 20 because we're not having it. But there's enhancements on all of these that the government's arguing for, which I, I think are probably pretty fair from having looked at this, but, and those are sophisticated means and obstruction, and those aren't all of those. And we'll talk about those later and why the government is arguing for those additions to the offense levels. And then as we noted after reading the intro, the government again notes that the Chrisleys objected to nearly everything in the PSRs. So that was the initial calculation that we talked about earlier. Most of their objections are attempts to reinterpret the evidence from trial and re-argue that the testimony and evidence from their witnesses should be credited despite the jury's unanimous verdict. So it seems like they're trying to re-argue what was found at trial through the sentencing procedure, according to the government. Yeah, I mean, obviously the Chrisleys did not like the jury verdict that was unanimous, finding them guilty of everything. And the court points out that, that, well, not the court, the government points out that the problem with their argument is that the jury was free to disregard the testimony, and then they put in parentheses, as it obviously did, and instead to credit the contrary evidence presented by the government's witnesses. The jury obviously found the government's witnesses far more credible than the Chrisley's defense. So when the Chrisley's in their objections to the PSR are saying, oh, no, 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 that wasn't right. It's They're basically saying, well, no, the jury wasn't right, which is not a great argument in a court of law. <laughs> so another thing that obviously makes the total amounts much higher for their sentencing level is the amount of money. And they're saying that the Todd and Julie Chrisley should, this is the government, should receive a 20-level adjustment because the actual loss was more than $9.5 million, but less than $25 million. And they state the Chrisleys engaged in a lengthy conspiracy to defraud community banks out of tens of millions of dollars. A reasonable estimate of the actual loss based on the evidence in this case is approximately $20 million. And the government is saying, look, this estimate gives the Chrisleys the benefit of the credits against losses they claim to be entitled to and is supported by reliable and specific evidence. So this is this sort of explains, you know, why the government submission was several points lower than what the PSR was. That's one of the reasons for that. They go on to explain how they made it to $20 million, and they say that they used reliable and specific evidence to arrive at that estimated $20 million amount. They say that there were fraudulent loans, which we talked about in our prior Todd and Chrisley, Todd and Chrisley, Chrisley episode, there were false statements made to banks in personal financial statements, falsely claiming that Todd Chrisley had $4 million at Merrill Lynch. They fabricated or, quote, scrapbooked banking statements, like we talked about before. That's still my favorite thing, is just imagining Julie Chrisley with her actual, it's like she didn't cut paste on the computer. There was, she didn't like use Adobe. She physically Mm -hmm. cut out, like with scissors and like, you know, a glue stick 
and scrapbooked. I have never seen that mentioned before, and I just love that they put scrapbooked in. <laughs> now, now that's gonna be that's gonna be a like a fraud term I'm gonna use. I'm like, oh, that was some scrapbooking <laughs> that they were doing. Yeah, <laughs> she's a real scrapbooker. They also filed false tax returns. Yes. Once the conspirators, so Todd and Julie, obtained these loans, the money was used to either pay back old loans or to fund the Chrisley's lavish lifestyle. Before and after trial, the United States thoroughly analyzed the available records to calculate a reasonable estimate of loss, and these records included more than 60,000 emails and documents from Mark Braddock. 60,000 emails and documents. Just goes to show how much evidence is exchanged during discovery in these types of cases. And how mad Braddock was. I mean, Braddock is really working. He was pissed. He was really working hard to sell them out, (laughs) which is really fascinating because he really did participate in this, but he managed to get himself immunity in order to like provide all of this information, which the Chrisleys are really Mm -hmm. annoyed about. And we'll talk more about that later. Yeah, and I'm sure we're going to see the same level of documents and emails referenced in Jen Shaw's sentencing memo because I believe there were like 20 computers mm-hmm. or something at least that they obtained related to. Yeah, her that crimes. was like, such a wide ranging conspiracy. Um, so they, I mean, they they yeah. they confiscated stuff from Las Vegas, from Arizona, from Manhattan. I mean, New Jersey. There was a right. ton. It's definitely more than 60,000 emails. I forgot that I forgot that they have already said how much it was. There was at one point early on in Jen's case, do you remember they were trying to get additional time mm-hmm. for briefing because they said that they had like tens of millions of documents to review or something like that. So we're going to be seeing – that's why I'm so excited to get these sentencing memorandums in Jen's case, not because I want her – you know, I, I feel my own personal feelings about her and going to jail, but I just want to see what they are. They have, they've, they've gone through so much evidence. Anyway, so what the government is saying here is, hey, we went through records, 60,000 emails to try and calculate the actual amount that Julie and Todd received or defrauded these banks from. They even interviewed the banks themselves. So we did our due diligence. There were 29 fraudulent loans. Yeah. I mean, the government is actually saying here, look, the PSR had very reasonable calculations that were done. We are giving you credit. You know, we're we're even giving you credit and saying like, okay, look, this total amount would probably more likely be higher than this. But we're actually like, you know, maybe doing a little bit of an average from what the PSR was saying. But now you're telling us that we're still not being fair enough and that it's speculative. But they're like, Mm-mm, no, it's not. And then they even got the FDIC to submit their own calculation on what they lost from emails and their own records. They submitted their total loss as $3,056,840 with some evidence of that loss as well. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that they also point out in a footnote that the number that the government is submitting for the sentence calculation doesn't include the dozens of fraudulent loan applications that Chrisley's and Braddock submitted to banks that were never funded. So they're like, look, this is what you actually mm. managed, the fraud you actually managed to complete. We're not even, we're being nice to you. We're not even including all of the ones that you submitted where they apparently didn't like Julie's scrapbooking or whatever, or they called you out on it or something and didn't get it done. So it's not, it's like, they're saying like, for instance, government exhibit 808 is a compilation exhibit of dozens of fraudulent applications that the Chrisleys and Bat. Braddock submitted to banks. They contained personal financial statements falsely claiming that Todd Chrisley had $4 million at Merrill Lynch. And then because many of these loans were not funded, the United States has not included the sought-after loans under a more expansive intended loss theory. So they, they're saying, look, we could, we could, this could be so we could be arguing for a lot worse than what we're actually arguing for here. Yeah, and they probably aren't because then that would take it up to the next level. Because right now they're only seeing $20 million and the range was between, wasn't it? Like between 9 and 20 million? Yeah, 9.75 and 20. So I feel like if they included the ones that they didn't even get, that might even bump it up. So they also talk about that the revised actual loss estimate corroborates the evidence offered during the Chrisley's case in chief. So they're saying, look, even during your case in chief for your defense, your own corporate attorney testified that Todd owed $20 million to banks, which was discharged in bankruptcy. They're like, your own attorney testified. And we're also, we're going to talk about that attorney later more as well. So essentially, to sum up this argument, they're saying the United States has offered reliable and specific evidence that the actual loss amount is approximately $20 million, 
which is over double the floor amount of the applicable enhancement, 9.5 million to 25 million. And it bears emphasis that the fraud scheme occurred from 2007 to 2012 and targeted many community banks that have since shuttered. The FBI agent that testified during the trial about the difficulties investigators encountered when trying to piece together the loan documents from failed banks. So yeah, they started this 2007. Then we had the financial crisis in 2008. The, you know, Banks ended up shutting down because they were targeting community banks, not big, huge ones. And then mm-hmm. they're like, it could have been even more if they had been able to get all of the records. Crazy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so they say in the in the submission, the United States has thoroughly analyzed the available records from banks that collapsed over a decade ago and has offered reliable and specific evidence, which takes into account the credits against losses that the credit, the Chrisley lists in their objections. Based upon this rigorous analysis that gives the Chrisleys every known benefit of the doubt, they're like, look, we are being more than fair here. Then the Chrisleys argue that the loss amount is zero dollars because they intended to repay the bank. <laughs> and <laughs> Chrisley's attorney cites a case, and this is a good example of lawyers distinguishing cases. So the Chrisley's defense attorney, anyone that's in law school or has just started practicing law, this is one of the things that you have to do that you learn about in law school, that you get a case and one side will cite the case in support of their position. And then you have to look at the case and look at the facts or the arguments that were made or both and distinguish it and say, look, yes, your honor, this does appear to be on point. But in fact, this case actually proves my point And here's why, or here's why this case, even though the facts are similar, does not apply. Or here's why this case, even though you know, the legal analysis is this, the facts are far different. And so that's one of the exercises. Or like, here's, they're taking one quote without context. That happens all the time. All the time. It's like certain words sound really good, isolated, but then you actually go and read the case and it's actually not about that at all. (laughs) So very good skill to have as an attorney. Yeah, one, one of the most important ones that you're to be able to do that and to be able to do it in a way that is effective and brief. So here they're saying, you know, the case that was cited by the Chrisley's defense is nothing like the facts in this case. They're saying in that case, the court vacated a sentence where the district court had erroneously calculated the intended loss amount using a recklessness standard instead of using a purposeful standard. But here, the 20 million figure is the actual loss to victim bank, not the intended loss. Moreover, the Chrisley's actions show that they had no intent to repay as they kept rolling new fraud loans to pay off old ones and eventually sought to extinguish the unpaid debt of bankruptcy, which, yes, that is exactly what they did. They did like they're saying, oh, no, we were like we were going to pay it back. It's fine. You, but they're saying, yeah, you're going to pay it back by committing more fraud mm-hmm. and then bankruptcy fraud after that, like your intent to repay or to get it discharged via fraud and then via bankruptcy fraud does not help you. So I really like this distinguishing here of the cases. The other thing, the next thing that they argue, um, so at trial, Julie Chrisley claimed that there was no evidence that she was ever part of the bank fraud conspiracy and thus, you know, low, no loss attributable to the banks should be attributed to her. The government says, quote, her argument is meritless and ignores the weight of the evidence showing her involvement in the fraud scheme. I, I get, how is her scrapbooking documents not <laughs> participation in the fraud? I don't, I don't, I don't understand that. So the government says there is ample evidence demonstrating that Julie Chrisley was involved in the bank fraud scheme from its inception, and as an active member of the conspiracy, all of the losses were reasonably foreseeable to her. So then they quote some testimony from Braddock. Um, I'll read the question. Do you want to? Do you want sure. to be Braddock? So Braddock testified that Julie was an active member of the conspiracy from its inception. Question. Can you tell me, did you commit fraud from 2007 onward just on your own? In other words, was it just you committing fraud? No, Mr. and Mrs. Chrisley and myself were all three involved. So under oath, he said it. And then Braddock also testified that he had conversations about cutting and pasting or, quote, scrapbooking, bank statements with Julie Chrisley that truly complimented Braddock on his scrapbooking noting that she had never been able to get her scrapbook documents to line up. Julie Chrissy was also well aware of the sheer volume of loans that the conspirators were taking out. Throughout the conspiracy, Julie drove around Metro Atlanta, dropping off past due loan payments, earning her the nickname, quote, asses on fire. 
<laughs> my God. They go I'm, on to say that it's not just testimony that proves that she was in the scheme. They have emails, records, documents, emails that they have attached to this memo for the court to review. It's pretty damn clear she was involved in the bank fraud. Yeah. And then they, yeah, they point out that she benefited from the fraudulent loan scheme through its existence and that, you know, two of the fraudulent loans were issued to her companies and that she was driving around Atlanta, paying off past due loans and bills and profiting off the fraudulently obtained loans. And they give an example. They say, for instance, the conspirators deposited a fraudulent loan in the amount of $231,832.84 into one of their company accounts. On April 24, 2007, the same day, $35,000 was transferred into a bank account under the control of both Julie and her husband. Julie's argument that she didn't participate is just, I, I honestly, I'm surprised she even made that argument. And then they also mention in here, from May 11th through May 31st, both Todd and Julie bled through the fraudulently obtained loan proceeds by not just paying back older loans, but paying for household expenses such as maintenance on pools at their various properties or cosmetic work for their children. <laughs> Good Lord. While Todd was the ring, this is the government. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So they're saying, quote, while Todd was the ringleader, Julie played an active role in every aspect of the conspiracy. It is immaterial to the loss calculation whether she was involved in or had actual knowledge of each and every fraudulent loan application. And then they're arguing that Todd Chrisley should receive another enhancement because the bank fraud scheme involved a misrepresentation or other fraudulent action during the course of a bankruptcy proceeding. So when a bank fraud offense involves a misrepresentation or other fraudulent action during the course of a bankruptcy proceeding, a two-point sentencing enhancement is warranted, which honestly seems very fair. If not only are you defrauding banks, but then in bankruptcy, you're also still defrauding creditors, you should get a two-point enhancement. I, I was actually surprised it was only a two-point enhancement, to be honest. So just a, a couple more interesting tidbits from the submission about what Todd did, because we still don't have the transcript from the trial. So the government here, again, in arguing for their sentencing range that they want, says that Todd Chrisley didn't just fail to disclose his involvement in the fraud. He made multiple material representations during the bankruptcy proceedings to cover up his crimes. And then they began blaming Mark Braddock for the whole bank fraud scheme, which, again, we talked about that in our previous episode about them. And they, the government sums it up by saying the jury found that Todd Chrisley was not only aware of the fraud, but he was committing it with Julie and Braddock. Braddock testified at length about Todd's involvement, and the jury saw numerous emails in which Todd was directing the conspiracy. 
And when Braddock reported he'd have difficulty, quote, scrapbooking because the bank had legitimate copies of the tax returns, Todd responded, quote, stop telling me this shit. Create them like you always have. If I don't get these, then they won't renew the loans. And then after receiving a false document, Todd emailed Braddock and said, quote, you are a fucking genius. Just make it show four million plus. So, I mean, the government we talked about that. Yeah. The government's pointing out here, look, these arguments they're making now that they've been found guilty are just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so they go through some of the other aggravating factors that they believe should increase the sentence. So another one is that Todd should receive a level two because he had an aggravating role, which means that he was an organizer, leader, manager, or supervisor. So that in- they say should increase the sentence by two levels. They said Julie Chrisley should not receive a mitigating role reduction. So usually you can get that reduced if you tried, I don't know, to like stop the other person or you were a minor participant in it. They said she was not one of those. So she shouldn't get any role reduction or any reduction for the role that she played in it. Yeah. In our sentencing for episodes on Jen Shaw's co-conspirators, there were several people that got reductions for various things, for having minimal involvement that were much lower on the, you know, the tier list. So that, I mean, that does happen. And there are sometimes very, very reasonable arguments for that. But the government here is, (laughs) is saying there aren't. And to be perfectly honest, I agree with them. So then the next is that Todd and Julie Chrisley should receive an enhancement for using sophisticated means to commit the tax offenses. So they want a two-level enhancement for that because of the intricate offense and the execution or concealment of the offense. Yeah. Under the guidelines, sophisticated means includes especially complex or intricate offense conduct pertaining to the execution or concealment of an offense, conduct such as hiding assets or transactions or both, through the use of fictitious entities, corporate shells, or offshore financial accounts, ordinarily indicates sophisticated means. I would anticipate they would make this argument for Jen Shaw. Mm-hmm. I think so. Then they say to Todd and Julie Chrisley should receive an obstruction enhancement for the bank fraud scheme and the tax offenses. So it's a two-level enhancement if, and this is, again, the government is arguing this, the defendant willfully obstructed or impeded or attempted to obstruct or impede the administration of justice with respect to the investigation, prosecution, or sentencing of the instant offense of conviction, and two, the obstructive conduct, the obstructive conduct related to the defendant's offense of conviction and any rele- relevant conduct or a closely related offense. I could see the government arguing this for Jen Shaw too with her mm-hmm. signal text message app contact telegram telegram i thought it was signal oh sorry signals on the brain for something else telegram signal is another one of those though and then hiding accounts in kosovo Kosovo. and all the other conduct in the indictment yeah opening up the shell company in wyoming that stew chains admitted to in order to you know try to hide all of those would count for this in my opinion type of enhancement I mean, this is okay. The next thing is one of the things that I think is one of the most egregious. I think we've told you guys before, please don't, first of all, don't commit federal crimes. But second of all, if you have it and you know you're guilty, admit it immediately, cooperate, get a good defense attorney to mitigate your sentence. But I mean, first of all, don't do it. But the, in federal, the federal agencies, they do all of their investigations beforehand. They, they know what you've done before they file the charges, which is different from state court where you typically have to get caught in the act of something and then they have to put a case together. It's it's a different type of process because the government has different types of resources and everything else. So here, this is this is this is just egregious, just so egregious. So Todd and Julie Chrisley submitted a sham document to the grand jury in response to a grand jury subpoena issued to 7C's productions. So they and first, and like it was all so futile. Like you could indict a lawn chair at a grand jury. The standard is so low. So to to go, they were going to get indicted, and but then to like actually in this act, that it's just egregious. 
that they were still doing scrapbooked or counterfeit documents and then gave those to the grand jury. Just yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, so this is evidence under the obstruction enhancement. Yeah. So during the opening statements, Julie's attorney told the jury that he and Todd's attorney forwarded a bogus corporate resolution to the grand jury. I mean, so it says, as it turned out, Julie apparently had left this corporate resolution, and this is where the alleged obstruction comes, in the trunk of her car. She cooks every meal. Believe it or not, she does. She's an outstanding cook. Blah, 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 blah. She had a helper at the house that day. Chad offered to bring in the groceries from the trunk. He goes in. He brings in all the groceries. He brings them in the kitchen. She's unloading the groceries. She sees the plastic bag that definitely has crumpled up papers like it's a trash bag. And then inside, she finds the corporate resolution. What does she do? Does she try to hide it? No. What she tries to do is the right thing. She calls our investigator. What does Bill tell her? Send it to me immediately, what she does. Then both Mr. Morris and I review it and really determine that this would be responsive to the same grand jury subpoena. So we turned it over to the government. But that was actually a sham document. So, like, I don't even know... <laughs> So they're like, well, this non, it's like when someone's telling a lie and then there's, you know, they give extra details. It, like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> and then another piece of evidence that they put in to the memorandum on the fact that they argue Todd and Julie were obstructing the investigation is that they say that they knowingly facilitated the presentation of false testimony from Faye Chrisley and Donna Cash. And so they say they called two witnesses, again, Faye Chrisley and Donna Cash, to falsely testify about issues material to their defense strategy. So if you remember, Faye Chrisley is Todd Chrisley's 77-year-old mother. So they put her on the stand to lie about key events, according to the government. They said that Faye Chrisley falsely testified that Julie asked her to be a signer on their account because they were moving to California to film a show, and that when she and Julie went to Bank of America, Julie told the bank employee that they wanted to quote, add me on as a signee, a signatory. Faye also falsely testified that she and Julie went back to the bank and hand-delivered a corrected copy of the business resolution with handwritten changes showing that Julie owned Seven Seas Productions instead of Faye and that a bank employee made a copy of the corrected business resolution and gave it to them before they left. They say Faye Chrisley's story was patently false and material and the Chrisleys put Faye on the stand to tell the same lie they got their attorney to tell the grand jury when they produced the sham document. Bank of America manager Lisa Stone unequivocally testified that Julie went into the Bank of America branch to remove her name from the Seven Seas Bank account and place her mother-in-law on the account instead. I mean, it, people <laughs> are so negative towards the Judiches, but I do not believe for one second they would ever throw their family under the bus. I mean, I'm not including Melissa and Joe because... We know how they feel about them. But what I mean, Teresa didn't. I mean, Teresa could have like worked hard to try to get out of jail time for herself, but chose not to. I mean, she didn't she didn't testify against her husband. She didn't turn against him. I just the fact that they're having their elderly mother and their children participate in these things is it's abhorrent. Yeah, the government continues with Donna Cash. They say that they put Donna Cash up to go on the stand and confess to the entire bank fraud scheme. But nearly everything she said on the stand was a lie. They got her to testify that she and Braddock were the ones who actually committed the six-year-long bank fraud scheme behind Todd and Julie's back and for Todd and Julie's benefit, doing such things as hacking into the Chrisley's home voicemail system and deleting voicemails from banks. She testified that the Chrisleys did not know that Braddock was falling, filing false BP oil spill claims, despite the audio recording of Julie Chrisley calling to ask when she would receive a check from their filed claim. So they I, had people go up on the stand and lie for them and point fingers at other people on their behalf. The, I mean, just the audacity. There's recordings. There's numerous, I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails where they're directly involved. And they're like, oh, no, 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 someone else did that. Oh, no, they were deleted. Oh, no, there's this. And it's like the, that, the type of liar that still persists in this, you know, it's like they're not learning any type of lesson. They're just that this is this like a special type of liar that of mm -hmm. all evidence to the contrary, literally, there's a recording of you doing the thing 
And you're still like, no, no, it wasn't me. I mean, and then, yeah, then it goes on. Todd Chrisley threatened, intimidated, and unlawfully influenced his daughter, Lindsay Chrisley. And we talked about some of this in the episode and how they treated her and what they did. Ugh. So in this case, Todd Chrisley not only tried to unlawfully influence his daughter, Lindsay Chrisley, he succeeded. After reporting to the FBI and U.S. probation that her father was harassing, intimidating, and attempting to extort her, Lindsay took the stand at trial and testified for her father and stepmother. But on cross-examination, she admitted to the events that led to her appearance in court. Crucially, these facts were all documented in the FBI interview report that had been disclosed to the Chrisleys in Discovery. From 2017 to 2019, Lindsay Chrisley was estranged from her father. Two months before he was indicted, Todd asked Lindsay to meet him in Chattanooga. Lindsay agreed to meet and drove to Chattanooga, believing that her father was going to apologize for their estrangement for the past two years. When she arrived at the restaurant where they met, Todd insisted that Lindsay leave her cell phone in the car. Once they were inside, Todd told Lindsay that he was about to be indicted and questioned Lindsay's involvement in the investigation. Todd continued to press Lindsay about her involvement, and Lindsay told him she was sick of him and chased Chrisley, putting out threatening tweets directed at her. Todd told Lindsay that she needed to be careful with Chase because he had a sex tape of Lindsay from an indoor security camera. Todd insisted the sex tape was real and told Lindsay she needed to be careful. A few weeks later, in July 2019, Lindsay called the FBI National Threat Operations Center and reported that her father was attempting to blackmail her with a supposed sex tape of her because he thought she was the reason they were under investigation. I, just his own daughter. This is what I mean. You know. Yeah, these people deserve everything. So it goes on with this. Like, it goes on about the more threats and the other things he was doing. And what's worse is, like, we talked about this before. The original person that reached out wasn't even Lindsay. It was the son. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Chase. And this is, lo and behold, a a father with a sex tape of their daughter. It's so gross on so many different levels. And then they say, lo and behold, at trial, Lindsay took the stand and provided favorable testimony for her parents. Which I still, I keep checking. Those transcripts aren't going to be available until the 19th of December. And I'm hoping we'll be able to get all those because I really want to see that trial testimony. So if I can get my hands on that, I'm thinking that we're going to do something special on our Patreon to discuss that because that's some really juicy testimony. They They are summarizing it. They have yeah. to pretty yeah. well for this. So yeah, we're getting a sense of what it says. But So then they go on and explain the restitution amount that they believe the Chrisleys should pay to the victims of the fraud and conspiracy, the bank fraud conspiracy. So just to summarize, driven by greed, this is from the government, the Chrisleys engaged in a decade-long fraud spree targeting banks, IRS, the judicial system, and countless third parties. And they talk about how the, the bank fraud scheme was enormous in scope and effectiveness and how they just repeated that over and over again. And then going on to this, I want to talk about the tax evasion a little bit, because this is something that I, I think will resonate with a lot of people. So this is the government. The Chrisleys may believe that their tax invasion was a victimless crime, but the consequences are felt by all taxpaying Americans. When traditional wage earners and W-2 employees, which is most of us, are paid, their income is automatically reported to the IRS by their employer. By contrast, the Chrisleys were paid as independent contractors through their loan up company, which they used to evade detection by the IRS. So it's like they're just using every possible loophole. And here's the government quote. Finally, Todd and Julie Chrisley's arrogance merits special consideration. Most tax cheaters try to keep a low profile while avoiding detection from the IRS, not the Chrisleys. In 2013, while Todd was in the midst of bankruptcy proceedings, the Chrisleys filmed a promotional video for their new reality show about their extravagant lifestyle. And if you've listened to our other Chrisley episodes, you know, we've talked about that. And <laughs> in this submission, the government also talks about how they've, they've cheated everybody. So the producer that actually got them the show, according to the trial testimony, um, Annie K. Pons, she testified at trial that no one had scripted the show or told Todd what to say. He was just being himself. So <laughs> she's, they even had producers come on and be like, nope, this is just Todd. This is actually reality TV, just saying things. <laughs> she said that she was, she testified and she was stiffed $10,000 from the Chrisleys. Yeah. 
Yeah, she. they say Todd Chrisley tried to scam NBC, the network that aired his reality television show through the USA Network, out of $1,300 because the network told him that they would pay for only one airline ticket. Despite being told this, Todd went on to falsely tell his agent, we paid $2,300 for that ticket after he had bought two. The fact that they earned over $1 million that year alone wasn't enough for these two fraudsters because they decided to try to bilk the network airing their show out of an additional $1,300. Witnesses called by the Chrisleys testified that despite earning millions as public figures and celebrities, the Chrisleys routinely sift service workers and professionals who they owed money. It just, again, it's so much worse than the Judiches because the Judi like, what the Judiches did was wrong. I don't want anybody to think that I, I think what they did was okay. It's not. But the Chrisleys are not paying anybody. They're stealing from everyone. They are literally, like, they won't pay contractors. They won't pay appraisers. They won't pay anybody. Just and they're nope. biting the hat, hand that feeds them. It's just yeah, ridiculous. They, yeah, they're even Throwing just they're even trying to bus. Yeah, what the hell? It's so bad. So yeah, I mean, and it's just nasty. So like at one point, the Chrisleys hired a professional appraiser to inventory and value a warehouse full of furniture. When the appraiser asked their accountant for payment for her completed work, Todd instructed the accountant not to pay her, telling him, and this is from an email, quote. Scare the fuck out of her and let her know from what you hear the Chrisleys are going after her insurance for damages. Like, coming up with any excuse to not pay anybody. Like, anything. Yeah. So they say the Chrisleys' criminal conduct was driven by greed, not necessity. And I think that is kind of the overarching theme of all of this. They say, unlike many white-collar Unlike many white-collar criminals, the Chrisleys did not need a dime from their fraud and tax evasion schemes. They were already wealthy. At its peak, the Chrisleys earned at least $600,000 a month through their company, and they later began earning millions from their reality show. No necessity or hardship existed that justifies or explains the money they stole from banks or the income they hid from the IRS. Neither can credibly say that they had to commit fraud to put bread on their family's table. One last thing I want to mention from the government submission is that the government went out of its way in the submission to say that just because they're white collar criminals, they should not get any special considerations or leniency. Mm -hmm. So this sentencing will be, this is quoting, this sentencing will be the first time that Todd and Julie Chrisley are held accountable for their 15 year fraud spree. The prison sentences in this case must take into account the seriousness of the Chrisley's crimes without affording a so-called white-collar discount. The 11th Circuit has explicitly instructed sentencing judges not to give what it called a sentencing discount because of a white-collar professional's economic or social status. Business criminals are not to be treated more leniently than members of the criminal class just by virtue of being regularly employed or otherwise productively engaged in lawful economic activity. It is natural for judges drawn as they are from the middle or upper middle class to sympathize with criminals drawn from the same class. But in this instance, we must fight our nature. Criminals who have the education and training that enables people to make a decent living without resorting to crime are more rather than less culpable than their desperately poor and deprived brethren in crime. And I loved that. I loved that the government went out mm -hmm. of their way to make sure to argue that because I think that's something that we all get frustrated with because it's like, you have the education. You didn't you didn't have to do this. Like Girardi didn't have to do this. Like Abby Lee Miller didn't have to do this. The Chrisleys didn't have to do this. They were all making money. And so absolutely I thousand percent agree with that. There is no excuse. Like you, they shouldn't just because of their status or the fact that they're white people or whatever, they should not be getting a discount. So we are gonna end right here. Angela is in New York right now for work, so had to step away. But we will release this ASAP and release part two later this week. So instead of having to wait two weeks, because this is technically all one episode and it's not enough to make a second episode out of it, we're gonna release this part now that you're listening to and then expect part two in a couple days. Part two is going to go over more of the Chrisley's argument in sentencing the sentence that they actually got, and the questions we received directly from our patrons on Patreon. So if you had questions that you wanted to get asked and you sent it to us on Instagram, we will not be covering those. We are covering exclusively our patrons' questions. And if you have a burning question for an upcoming legal topic like Jen Shaw's, 
be sure to follow us on Patreon and your question will be included in our Genshaw episodes. I also want to add that I added some merchandise to our website. We have a new tagline of merchandise that you can buy. So be sure to look out for some mugs. You can get a nice little tote bag, a sticker. Stickers are great. You can put them anywhere. And they say JD in reality TV. And that's all for you legal team so thank you again for joining us as always and be sure to look out for the next episode or part two of this episode in the next couple days thanks for listening even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks italian leather jackets and so much more And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Bravo Docket is part of the ACAST Creator Network.